Hello, hello, everyone. This is Volts for November 22nd, 2023. Managing a distributed grid. I'm your host, David Roberts. One of my favorite things I ever wrote was a 2018 piece for Vox on grid architecture, the basic structure of the electricity transmission and distribution networks. It was about how a top-down system with one-way power delivery from big power plants to passive consumers might evolve into a bottom-up system driven by local distributed energy resources. One person who read that piece was Astrid Atkinson, who at the time was a senior software engineer at Google. She had managed a team that shifted Google search from a top-down system to a massively distributed system back before the term the cloud existed and there was no template available. She and her team had to develop the principles and best practices for getting reliable performance out of millions of unreliable, loosely coordinated machines. By doing so, they radically expanded the scale and speed of what search could do. She thought, wouldn't it be cool if the power grid could make the same shift? Unlike some people, though, she didn't just blog about it. In 2019, she left Google to co-found and run Camu Energy, a software company that helps utilities see, track, and coordinate the distributed energy resources in their territories. The company calls what it does grid orchestration. Atkinson has been a thought leader in pushing for a new grid architecture, so I was super excited to geek out with her on this stuff. We talked about the conceptual shift from centralized to distributed and the drivers making that shift inevitable, getting more out of the grid we've already built through coordination and efficiency, and about how the utility sector can evolve to better manage local resources. I really loved this one. Okay then, Astrid Atkinson, uh, welcome to Volts. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. <laughs> I'm so excited for this, Astrid. I have to tell you, just uh, just by way of preface, that I had a weirdly difficult time preparing for today's pod because I'm just so excited by this whole area and I'm so jazzed. I have so many things to ask you about, so many things I want to say about all this stuff, and I'm kind of overwhelmed and fried my circuits. But let's start here. Let me uh, describe for listeners what you did at Google and tell me if this is an accurate description. So you were part of a team, I think leading a team that was shifting the way Google did things away from a model where computing was done on a relatively limited set of high quality, extremely reliable data centers, tightly centrally controlled to a model where computing is done not on a small set, but on thousands, millions of distributed computers living all over the place, any one of which might be unreliably connected or off periodically or weak or otherwise glitchy. So basically moving from a model of tightly coordinated central control, limited number of entities to loosely coordinated millions of entities somehow getting aggregate reliability out of 
massively distributed, individually unreliable machines. Is that more or less accurate? Yeah, that's about right. (laughs) So my role was in the site reliability engineering team at Google, which is a function that nobody's ever heard of outside (laughs) of the kind of tech industry. But you can think of reliability engineering as being basically Google's systems engineering function. It's the entity that's kind of responsible for pulling all of the pieces together between sort of software and operations and networking and hardware and everything and making sure that you can get them to kind of work as a a reliable system overall. And I was part of the original team that kind of, that it wasn't a function that existed in the industry before Google made that transition. Hmm. I was part of that original team at Google and then led a lot of Google's work around scaling out that model. And so now the idea more or less, is to oversee or encourage a parallel evolution of the electricity grid, basically, from a limited number of tightly centrally controlled entities to a loosely coordinated, massively distributed, huge number of smaller entities, basically. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the hope. (laughs) (laughs) And that's partly derived from the utility industry and the grid space's sense of the changes that are needed, and also partly derived from my sense that there are a fair number of parallels between some of the approaches that we took and kind of had to make up on the spot to support massive growth and really significant changes in the way that we managed systems for that work at Google. And there are parallels with the changes that we need to go through on the grid side. So it's less like there's this one piece of technology that we built at Google that will totally solve the problems and more like <laughs> we had to develop like a set of approaches and a set of kind of integrative and system level perspectives to figure out how to make that change happen. And I think a lot of those can be helpful in the grid space. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most intriguing things about this is in doing that work, you extracted a set of principles for, you know, uh, how to make, you know, how to design systems like this such that they are reliable, et cetera. And though it is those principles, I think it's like conceptually those principles apply to the grid. Obviously the individual technologies might be different. Circumstances are different, but the principles of how to make it work, I think are a a weirdly neat fit. (laughs) (laughs) The the reason I think we should maybe, maybe uh, pull out the reason that this is not something that the utility really can choose to do or not to do. It kind of has, utilities kind of have to do it for a couple of reasons. One is all these distributed energy resources. Volts listeners are familiar with these, these distributed Just a little. energy. <laughs> yeah, with these, you know, solar panels and hot water heaters that can store energy and, and batteries, et cetera, et cetera. All these sort of behind the meter distribution side distributed resources are coming online whether you whether you, the utilities like it or not they are swarming it's happening online it's happening and right now utilities like are just like kind of hoping it works out <laughs> <They don't, laughs> it will it will get into that that's one reason yeah but the other reason is we're expecting like you could say of google like it couldn't have scaled to the size it got it couldn't do the no. amount of computing it's doing without going through this transition you That's just right. can't at, at a certain point with a centrally controlled system where you're tightly controlling a limited set of entities you just can't get 
big beyond a certain uh, level. You run into sort of computational, you know, the sort of like limits of your computational resources yeah. for a central controller. So, and, and we're expecting a lot more out of the electricity system in coming years, as Volt's listeners are also very familiar with. We're going to two or three X the demand that it has to satisfy in a much more complex way. So I, I think it could be argued, and you have argued, and I think it's pretty self-evident that that the electricity system cannot achieve the scale we want out of it without going through this evolution. There's just no way for the way it's currently run to get as big as we want it to get. Yeah, and if you want like sort of some simple like examples of why that is, utilities have spent a lot of money and a lot of time in the last kind of 10 to 15 years installing smart meters, right? And they were supposed to give us the kind of universal visibility into customer activity that I think we can all kind of intuitively think that we would need to manage a rapidly changing grid with a lot more complexity. But most utilities don't really have particularly high scale data infrastructure. And so the idea of actually being able to do something useful with all of that, you know, meter data, SCADA data, kind of everything at scale on an ongoing basis in real time, using that as a foundation for analysis and visibility and those kinds of things. It's really hard for them because usually the software systems that gather and process that data, they're on-premise within the utility's own data center. They're typically not really using any kind of modern scalability approaches beyond like downsampling the data, which means losing some of it. Mm -hmm. um, and they're usually running on a single machine. <laughs> so it gets really difficult to incorporate very large amounts of data when you can only use one computer. Yeah, if you talk to them, they're like, oh my God, we've got all this data. It's overwhelming. The reason we're not doing more with it is like, we, we can't do more with it. We're overwhelmed. And then you look at the scale of data involved and like to a Google, it's a tiny amount of data. Yeah. You know? Like the scales are completely different. Yeah, just as a back of the envelope calculation, I was trying to figure out like how many data points do Google's monitoring systems collect on a daily basis. And it should be somewhere in the order of six to ten trillion. Good God. <laughs> That's like whatever atoms in the universe. I don't know what the right comparison is. But. Um Google's where I learned the term exabyte, right? Like they sort of just came into this with a perspective on scale that was sort of a you know orders of magnitude larger. And it's you don't really think about the amount of computing work that's required to get you, you know, the right answer in mm -hmm. under a second to any question that you might have through search. But, you know, the short answer is hundreds of thousands of computers all at once. Right. You can just do more. Right. And so the current the way utilities are running this with sort of a single machine on premises chewing through this data serially is just not going to get anywhere close to that scale. Yeah. And to be fair, they'll scale up to, you know, five or 10 machines, but the systems that we had to build to kind of manage the sort of, you know, the Google scale type computing, they weren't five to 10 machines. They were 50 to 500,000 machines. <laughs> right, right. Which you're not going to do on premises. You have to basically move to the cloud, to widely distributed resources. So Astrid, this, all this sort of preface, conceptual preface is so my jam. You probably, you probably know this. I, I, um. Because I wrote a, a big article about grid architecture a few years ago. Yes. Um, and that article, if you're talking about the one from 2018, was really influential in how we started thinking about the space um, a little bit before starting the company. I mean, that was 
literally my dream writing that article is that like some smart person who understands how this works with computers will come over to the utility industry and bring it to the electricity <laughs> system. Literally, like you are you're the answer to my prayer. But what you may not know is that this is my jam going even way farther back, like back in the mists of time, back in the mists of prehistory. I was getting a philosophy degree. I was working on a PhD in philosophy. And my whole thing was, um, you know, studying cognitive science and consciousness and sort of cognition and how cognition works. And one of the things I was, I was deep into is this shift of people describing cognition as distributed and describing the human identity as distributed. You know, this sort of this like illusion of a unity that actually comes out of massively distributed, relatively dumb nodes coordinating to produce this emergent behavior that we call consciousness. Yeah. So like the whole idea of moving from centralized to distributed, that was in my bones even as far back as grad school. So now it's like popping up all over the world. These are really just thrilling times for me personally, I guess, <laughs> what I'm, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, it's so cool to see all this stuff come together. So one of the things you say in your presentations and such is the first step one, if you want to do this, if you want to coordinate massive numbers of nodes to get a desired set of behaviors as an outcome, the very first thing you need is knowledge of the nodes. <laughs> you need to know what's out there and what it's doing and what its capacity is. And in the computer world, you know, we have the system of, on the internet, we have the system of IP addresses, you know, an individual address for every single computer that's connected to the internet. And there, as we say, millions and millions of them. So right there, it seems <laughs> like right there, your attempt to pull this over into electricity looks like it grounds out because like we just don't have that. Like when I hook a water heater up to the grid, I don't think it gets an individual identifier, does it? Or a solar panel or an EV battery or EV charger, et cetera, et cetera. Like we just don't I mean, this is the whole problem, right? Is all these devices are hooking up to the grid and we don't, and utilities don't know where they are or what they're doing or when they're going to do what they're doing. And I don't, I can't have trouble imagining a system that would individually identify them. So right there, like right, right off the bat, how do you overcome this first and most difficult problem? Because as you say, when in one of your presentations, the pyramid, you show the, the pyramid of reliability, and the base level, the bottom, the, the level upon which the rest of the levels are built is monitoring. Mm -hmm. You have to know what's going on out there on the edge of your network. And in electricity, we don't. So how the heck do we overcome that, that problem to even get to the other problems? Yeah, so there's really, from a technical perspective, kind of two questions buried in the one that you just asked. One is about addressing. And it's true that we don't really have, you know, an IP address system for the grid. But the reason that we need that for the internet is that we ultimately need each individual piece of work to end up at a specific location. Like an email needs to end up at a certain address or mm -hmm. a DNS query needs to go to a certain server in order to get a response. Whereas in the electrical system, we're really sort of thinking more generally about managing like need for work to ability to do work. So managing supply to demand. And it doesn't really matter which particular electron serves the need. 
one of the primary goals is just that there are always exactly, you know, the right number, always exactly the right amount. So the, the problem space is a little bit different in that perspective. It doesn't mean we don't need to know what's on the grid and where it is, but you don't have quite the same need for an absolutely universal addressing system. Just as an example, you know, one of the ways that one could tackle this is there's a bunch of really interesting work happening in the grid management and grid architecture space in Australia, which I'd love to talk about a little bit more when we get further through this. But as part of that, they um, basically extended universal identifier system that applies both to meters for one set of identifiers and then to generators for another set. And that's just kind of the country deciding to do things a certain way. And it definitely, I think, can be a helpful enabler to have that. In the absence of that, you can correlate it across multiple sources because within any given utility, they do actually have like a way to identify specific assets. Typically, that's something associated with the meter number. So it's usually like a site identity or like a site number or something like that that identifies a particular customer location that associates with a billing relationship and associates usually with a specific physical meter and is like kind of the identity component that ties those things together. Right. But isn't the problem that behind any one of those meters might be multiple devices that behave very differently and have very different timing and et cetera? Yes. And should you want to be able to tie together the activity of those devices with the utilities identification mechanism, you're going to need to write some software. (laughs) So one could do this today by basically just like writing software to link together the program identifier or the device asset identifier, let's say you're talking to charge point chargers, you can get like a charge point charger ID. And with a modest amount of software, you can link that together with a meter ID. It's all kind of a pain in the ass, but it's doable. <laughs> would it not be easier with something like an IP system though? I mean, is there any talk about, what, is there any, is that a gleam in anyone's eye? Yeah, I do like the Australian model. I think they call it a, it's like a distributed generation ID and then there's like a meter ID. It's basically mm. just an agreement that, you know, those things are going to be unique across multiple systems. I think one of the sorts of things that could be easily extracted as an example, and it certainly would help. I think there's a lot you can do without it, but it would help. <laughs> the other thing that's kind of buried in your question, though, is how can we see what's out there and know what's happening? Mm-hmm. And when we talk about monitoring, in the internet space, as you mentioned, from my diagram, which is actually drawn by a former colleague of mine, Mikey Dickerson, who went to go lead up. Um, I don't know if you remember, but the healthcare.gov rescue team <laughs> under the Obama administration. <laughs> Heroes. Mikey uh, was a, a colleague of mine at Google, and he went to go lead up that rescue effort. <laughs> and so the diagram you're mentioning, which is a lovely one, it's just like a little pyramid of like, it's kind of like Maslow's pyramid of needs, but for reliable computing. It does have monitoring and system visibility as its foundation. And what that looks like in the internet computing space is that for every systems component, whether you're talking about individual server or a network router or a piece of software or whatever that's operating within the construct of a larger system, you kind of want to know what it's doing. And that's why Google collects so many data points for their systems, because they have quite a lot of them. But this is common across the entire modern computing industry. If you're running a large system, you would typically have a monitoring system that would pick up ongoing telemetry, so like heartbeat information and activity information from literally every component, and then assemble that into, firstly store that data and then assemble it into some operator-friendly dashboards and ways to keep an, an eye on what the system is doing. We don't 
really have that in the particularly the distribution grid today. We do have it on the transmission side, but that's not really how the distribution grid rolls at the moment. Yeah. And so absent a system like that being put into place with unique identifiers for every little piece, ultimately, it seems like you're in the end modeling, basically estimating on some level, are you not? It's a mix, usually. So in practice, what that looks like is you do end up with unique identifiers for those assets because, you, you know, if you're bringing in a data stream from an EV charger or a battery or a solar inverter or something like that, you want to know which one it comes from. So in the absence of like a universal addressing scheme, the way that we would do that from a technical perspective is we'd say, you know, we've correlated this battery with this site ID. So its identity is now site ID dot battery or something like that in our database. So you're actually creating that notion of identity to do that. And then we're pulling in data, or whoever is pulling in data from ideally every one of those things. Now, those things are all exporting data all the time anyway. Like their vendors, their installers are always installing them along with some kind of remote monitoring capability. Right, just not to the utility. (laughs) No. Um, And as mentioned, partly that's because the utility in general is not very good at dealing with very large amounts of data. Right. But it's also because that's a lot of vendors to talk to and a lot of devices to talk to. Yes. And I would imagine a lot of different data formats and just like, it must be a mess of information. This is where the modeling stuff comes in. Because in general... There's lots of data available, but it's almost never universal. It's almost never consistent Uh, across every utility or device type or whatever. Sometimes you'll have utilities that have smart meters with 20% of their customers, but not the others. Or you might have ones where they have meters that give you a monthly read for most customers and then a small subset that can give you more frequent data. You might have utilities that know where all their rooftop solar is and have even production meters that tell you what it's doing, but most have an interconnection record that's kind of separate from any other data set. Maybe it's in their GIS. And most don't have a production meter to tell you what's happening there. And so if you want to make sense of all of that, you do need to use a fair bit of modeling. So that can be from everything like, this meter data has a bunch of drops where the network dropped out, and I need to fill it in so that the time series is complete. To like the meter data has a different frequency, like it's sampled every 15 minutes and SCADA data is sampled every minute and I want to compare them. So now I need to fill in minutely data points using a model. Or it might be, I want to have some idea of what rooftop solar is up to, but I don't have any production meters. I do know where there's rooftop solar installations on my system though. And we do have modeling tools that can do a forecast for rooftop solar. So then what you can do is like forecast the likely output of you know, panel that's yay big at location X. Right. Um, match that against the data that you actually have from the meter and then form you know, more complex and more complete machine learning models, which can then give you a model-based view of what's probably happening. Right. So this is where the this is where the machine learning and the AI comes in. That's is right. Taking the data you do have and extrapolating to a more complete a- absolutely. And That's really valuable, not just for things like forecasting, which is kind of the most common use case for it, but it's also useful for understanding what might be happening right now, because most utilities don't really have great visibility in real time to anything that's sort of below the substation or feeder circuit, or maybe they have reclosers or something on the line, but they don't really have any visibility at the distribution transformer or at the meter. 
that is anything like real time. Metadata usually trails by between two and 48 hours. You know, when as I was reading about this and thinking about this, my mind kept bumping up against one thing, which is that like a model like this in like, I don't know, like global shipping of goods, you know, where, where you're where may, maybe you lack certain information sets and you're deriving them from other information and making a model a sort of like extremely educated guess. And you get close enough for, you know, for government work, you get close enough to make the thing work. But in electricity systems, you really got to get it exactly right. Like the, the the supply and demand have to be exactly matched at every second. It just, like, can you get from the limited data we have now, add a bunch of machine learning and AI to derive a, a, a global picture of what's happening? Is that global picture going to be accurate enough to meet the sort of reliability standards we we require of electricity specifically like people are not very forgiving you know if you if you have little gaps so the key question is reliable enough mm-hmm. um, is it going to be perfectly reliable absolutely not and for high fidelity low latency applications you need high fidelity low latency data but a lot of our applications are not high fidelity and low latency and so there's a lot to unpack in terms of how much data you need for particular use cases. Mm-hmm. But broadly speaking, for things like maintaining frequency of the bulk system, right. that's something that needs to be done on like a sub-second basis. That's you know, obviously it's kind of a 60 hertz basis. But we have that visibility on the transmission system, and we have transmission operators whose job it is to maintain that frequency. So if you don't have that kind of fidelity on the distribution side, that's not necessarily going to impact stability from like a frequency maintenance perspective, mm-hmm. especially if you do have like fast response assets like batteries and stuff like that, that the transmission operator can call on to provide services. And there the distribution operator, even if it's distribution connected, doesn't really need to know about that as long as somebody knows that they need it and can call on it. So when we think about like what we need in terms of data completeness on the distribution side, kind of depends on the use cases, right? Like if we want to be able to just like use flexible load to move our peak usage around so that you're not running up huge like demand charge bills on behalf of the utility at you know, peak usage times in the evening, you don't really need real-time data for that. You can just kind of move it around on a day-ahead basis. Right. If you want to be able to manage, let's say you've got a house with five power walls and you want to make sure that when you charge those power walls, they don't blow up the transformer that that house is connected to. <laughs> That's also something that benefits from more real-time data but doesn't strictly require it because you can just like kind of put a bit of a margin for error on your calculation of transformer capacity and make sure you operate within it. What you lose is a lot of additional efficiency and the more you want to actually use that active management to manage reliability and grid capacity conditions, the more you do really need the actual real-time data. But it can be a process. It doesn't have to be perfect from day one. Right. I mean, a lot of this is just about how to get started with the crappy <laughs> systems we have in front of us. I'm sort of like... I, I like to refer to it as real-world data. right which anyone who's dealt with the real world knows yeah is generally pretty crappy so what's the sort of balance of efforts of trying to organize people to produce more data on these things right or or harmonize data or come up with some sort of harmonized 
transferable, mutually communicatable <laughs> data systems versus effort put into the machine learning and AI that can make hay out of existing data. Does that make sense? Like what's, what's the, are you just running with the data you got or are there also efforts underway to produce better data or to harmonize data across all these systems? Yeah, there's really both. So there's a bunch of really good work that's happening in the industry to try to get much higher fidelity data collection and reporting at you know either the meter or an equivalent kind of customer side component. Mm-hmm. So companies like Sense do this, you know, span panels can do this, the meter manufacturers are all working on it. Are the smart meters that got installed in that first wave of smart meter installs, are they useful for this? Like are they producing good data for this? Kind So the real issue with smart meters, especially in the U.S., at least from my perspective, is not actually the meters themselves. Um, You know, they collect data every 15 minutes, which is pretty sparse in general. Smart meters do? Yeah, sometimes. Often it's every hour and sometimes it's every month. That's not super smart. It's not very fast, (laughs) no. And a lot of times it really has to do with the amount of data that the head-end system, which is like the software system that picks up the data, can bring back. It also has to do with the bandwidth of the network that's available to the meter to bring data back to the meter as well. So in general, we collect and store a lot less data than we could. And a lot of that has to do with limitations of the communications network and of the, you know, not enough computers to bring in the data. So you could theoretically get more out of those in the future if you built up the infrastructure. Yes. The big issue with the data collection from smart meters today, from my perspective, is that most of them in the U.S. communicate via an RF mesh network, which basically uses kind of a, I don't know, you could think of it as like a bucket brigade for data. It's like kind of tossing from like one meter to a repeater, to an upline repeater, to an upline repeater. And like God knows what it's doing out there on the network, but it takes like often six hours to get a message back. <laughs> um, like I like to picture like the data like having a little picnic out there on the lines. <laughs> Because it's very slow. Little, it's like the, it's like the Hobbit. Mm-hmm. It's like a, a, a trudging through fields and over mountains. Yeah. And so, you know, and most of those systems will let you get a single point read from a single meter more quickly. But if you wanted like universal, real, you know, somewhat real-time visibility into what's happening at every meter, today, for anyone who has those systems, the only way to get that is to forecast it. Mm. And so that's where, you know, you're really sort of looking at the role of real-time forecasting to try to fill that gap. Now, the, the issue with getting more instrumentation out there or even getting those kinds of technologies in place isn't really a technical one. It's more that most utilities have never had it and they haven't really felt a need for it. Right. Like moving around large amounts of data is, uh, you know, a solved problem, let's say, technologically. <laughs> it is something that we have great technologies for. But they're just not using it. And this, uh, just as a general comment, and this is something I'd say frequently, I feel like ordinary people who are out there very familiar with tech and the internet and all that kind of stuff would be surprised if they knew how comparatively low tech the grid is compared to the systems that they're using day-to-day life. Like it's wild that there are still people like finding out about outages by getting a phone call from Bob who's walking his dog, you know, and that like causes Jerry to have to go throw a physical switch somewhere. Like the whole thing just seems incredibly like the more you learn about it, you're like still in you know in 2023. Uh, yeah. I don't know if this was your impression when you started getting into it. 
Um, I remember going to do a tour at San Diego Gas and Electric for their operations center, not that long after starting the company. And the difference between like data fidelity and kind of amount of real-time operations on the transmission side versus the distribution side is pretty shocking. Hmm. Um, the transmission side is everything you'd expect, right? I remember like when we did that tour, they walked us into a conference room, gave us a little advanced talk, and then flipped a switch and the entire like frosted glass wall of the conference room went transparent and you could see their transmission operations room with their gigantic screens and all these operators in their little consoles with, you know, each one has half a dozen computers around them and it looks really high tech. You go over to the distribution side and it's like a bunch of desks. People maybe have two monitors and it's mostly right. people taking calls and making calls to roll trucks <laughs> to fix outages. We have the technology. We even have it in the grid. We just need to scale it. Yeah, distribution systems basically have been neglected and badly need now to be beefed up in a number of different ways because of the aforementioned flood of, of DERs coming. Yeah, and if I can mention one of the parallels with my past life you know, doing operations at Google, because part of my job was actually like on-call operations. I led the team that was responsible for Google's homepage for about five years. <laughs> so if you went to google.com to see if your internet was on between 2007 and 2012. <laughs> that was That was my team, and I carried a pager myself for it. <laughs> one of our big strategic efforts as we were doing that work was really thinking critically about building tools to help operators understand system scale. So, you know, if you think about not only a very large system, but also one that's undergoing constant change, yeah. where there might be, you know, dozens or hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of individual systems interacting. Changes are happening all the time that you don't know about. And that's true even in, you know, a Google type environment where you'd think like it would be all coordinated. But Google has like 100,000 software engineers. It might be 200,000 by now. <laughs> good God. Um, and good God, they can generate new things quickly. <laughs> um, and so, you know, from the operations side, one of your big challenges is making sure that what's happening within that changing system is comprehensible to a small group of people. Yes. Can't change human bandwidth. That's right. And so one of our like kind of core philosophies about that was we wanted to have tooling that would let us support exponential growth in the system with sublinear growth of the operations workforce supply required mm. to support it. Right. And so that means like you're making a lot of ongoing investments in tooling and stuff like that. But it also means that like that technology investment is a fundamental part of how you scale the system and that operations function is kind of intrinsically tied to how and whether you can scale the system. And so, you know, when I saw that room and San Diego Gas and Electric of their distribution operators working really hard to manage the complexity of the system that they have, you know, I kind of look at that from like a systems engineering perspective and kind of a large systems perspective and just think like, wow, making sure that those folks have the tools that they need to understand what's happening as we go through all these changes, like that's actually really close to the heart of the problem. Yeah. And is there an industry doing that? Like, is it all like, does the utilities, do they just cook all that stuff in house? Like, are they, is there a, a where are the hundred thousand engineers that are helping, <laughs> helping utilities? Well, I have a company of about 30. <laughs> um, so we're short a few. <laughs> no, there are people, of course, across the industry that are working on this. Um, and that's, Typically a mix, though, of the existing kind of large-scale vendors and folks within the utility trying to kind of roll their own, which is good in the sense that they know the problem space, but bad in the sense that like very large-scale, they kind of 
real-time operations cloud computing is sort of a specialty that doesn't have a lot of overlap necessarily with like utility systems training. So we we could use a lot more person power on this problem for sure. <laughs> so the point of all this, and this is a, a point I thought you made really well in one of your talks, is one way we could deal with the growth in demand that we know is coming is just to build more and more grid. But building grid is hard. <laughs> there are, you know, NIMBY problems and capacity problems, money problems, and our ability to build out physical grid is rapidly going to be outstripped by rising demand. Yeah. So our only real alternative here is to make more use of the grid we've got, is to use the grid we've got more efficiently. Yep. And basically what that means is coordinating the behavior of all of these millions of distributed devices so that they work in concert yeah. with with generation and everything <laughs> works in a big uh, happy system together. So, but, you know, like right now, I think, uh, you know, Volta listeners will be familiar with crude proto versions of this, you know, yeah. like demand response systems where the aforementioned phone calls are, you know, like someone calls you and says, hey, will you not run your, you know, boiler on, on X hours of X day? And they're like, okay. So that's like, that's a form of coordination of those machines. But I think anyone can tell with a little bit of thinking that that's not going to <laughs> scale up to millions of them. So the key here, the heart of all this is beginning to automate these things is the yeah. beginning to automate the behavior of these thousands and millions of distributed devices. And so here again, I think your experience in Google transfers pretty well since automating tasks, automating work, work routines and subroutines is kind of at the heart of what you're doing. So talk a little bit about the, uh, the hierarchy of work <laughs> and the ladder of, of automation. Yeah, so there, there's a couple things in that. First, I guess it, it's maybe helpful to have a concrete example of what that looked like at Google. So one of the things that we went through at Google was reaching a point where the global load distribution system, which manages all data center traffic, was needing to be adapted to manage really rapid growth on demand for network bandwidth. And so before that, we were really just kind of moving search requests around across a set of global data centers. And, you know, that has its own constraints. You need to be able to move that traffic quickly. You need to be able to respect capacity constraints. You don't necessarily blow up substations if you get it wrong, but you actually can overload and crash servers. And it has a lot of analogs to the grid system in the sense that, like, once you overload servers, you can cause cascade failures that will take down service globally. So there are consequences to getting that wrong, even when it's just search traffic. To put it in electricity terms that, that the audience will be very familiar with, you're just trying to avoid peaks in computing yes. load. Basically, you're trying to make the demand for computing look like a nice, smooth line, even though there's tons going on beneath that line. If you can coordinate it all just right, yep. you get a nice, smooth line and, and spikes because you have to build, you know, as you point out in your papers, any network is built to the size of its tallest peak. That's exactly right. So the more you can smooth out those peaks, the more you can grow the whole thing without demanding more infrastructure. And that just yep. transfers very straightforwardly to electricity. You're trying to That's move right. load demand around and coordinate it such as to create a nice, 
smooth demand line. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's kind of the fundamental capacity planning constraint for any large scale system like that is really what's your peak demand and can you absolutely meet it? Or do you have a way to shed some of that demand if you're going to cause system problems? Right. So when we transitioned to needing to be able to scale the use of network bandwidth, it was when Google bought YouTube and we needed to be able to serve lots of cat videos. <laughs> um, we started to think about not necessarily taking every user request all the way from you know Azerbaijan to a data center in California, but rather like, could you put capacity out in Azerbaijan to serve the most popular Azerbaijani cat videos? And so we went through this really big transition of how we manage the network towards much more distributed capacity management and also software-based network automation. So really moving towards software-based management of where and how peaks occur, because you're exactly right. And then also trying to move as much work as possible to the edges of the network so that you could get more work done on the network as a whole. So the parallel in the energy system is moving as much work as possible as close to the user as possible. So that's Mm. moving it to distribution-connected resources and to DERs. And what that gets you is a bunch of tools for optimizing your network capacity, which if we want to you know, get our grid to do more without building four times as much of it is really what we need to do now. So thinking about like, okay, what's the set of technologies that makes that kind of transition possible? If you need 10,000 times more capacity from an existing network, or let's just say like 10 times more or even four times more, which is probably about what we're going to need, you need some tools to be able to handle that. So firstly, the more of that work you can do close to the source, the more network you have to work with. Mm-hmm. Secondly, understanding what the network constraints are in a really nuanced way and also what the need for capacity and the available um, supply to meet that is in a really nuanced way, uh, like the monitoring piece, like what's out there, what's available, not just for the system as a whole, but like on my street or your street or my substation is a really important part of that. And then the analog to what we did at Google, which was to put caching, which is basically computers that store information close to the user. So we'd like preload the cat videos that are most popular near your house, (laughs) um, is basically storage in the grid, right? And what that gave us was... The ability to do some work locally, which increases the reliability of the system as a whole, because you don't have to have the whole network between, you know, Azerbaijan and California working perfectly all the time. A lot of times you can just do the work locally. But it also gave us a lot more flexibility around being able to handle really extreme variations in load, because you could have some of that load soaked up locally. You could potentially shed a little bit of it. You could potentially move it around to other assets that could, you know, soak it up somewhere else. And so when I think about that from a grid perspective, like the sorts of changes that would support that, they're not huge. You know, we need a better sense of what's going on. We need more control over load showing up, when and how it shows up, and ideally the ability to smooth out peaks. And some reasonably large amount of storage distributed broadly across the grid to like substation or lower would give us a lot of flexibility in how we manage that system. So, you know, if we're not exactly right about exactly how much supply and demand is going to show up, you can just kind of soak it up with local storage and not have to worry about it too much. Get you a little buffer there. Yeah. So the equivalent here is, you know, if I need an electron to run my toaster, 
and the grid can be coordinated such as to provide that electron from my neighbor's solar panel, let's say, you're using the minimal amount of the network and leaving as much of the network possible open for other things, basically. Like you're minimizing total network load work. Absolutely. And to some degree, you do that already, right? Like, let's say that your neighbor, like me, has an oversized solar panel. I have nine kilowatts on my garage. During the day, a lot of times I'm backfeeding into the system, so I'm powering my neighbor's toaster. The reason that doesn't really get us very far in terms of like saving money on grid upgrades or really contributing to the health of the system today is that all parts of the grid still need to be sized as if that didn't exist because we <laughs> don't have any way to guarantee that the peaks don't show up. Right, right. And this the thing is like it, when you're building a network, if you've eliminated 99% of the peaks, you still got to build the network as big as <laughs> the, the yes. last remaining peak is. So or you need a last ditch alternative to be able to shed that one remaining peak. There's a couple different ways to do it, but yes. There's so much in here, but this gets to the grid architecture question that I was writing about back in 2018 with my cool diagrams that my They were that, so cool. I know I see I've seen <laughs> that you're using variations of them in your presentations <laughs> and it makes me so it makes me so happy. I'm glad it makes you happy because we thought that they were amazing and really explanatory. And found them very inspiring. That's uh, uh, Javier at, at uh, Vox. I'll, I'll put a link to that piece in the show notes. But basically, the idea here is that you go to the lowest level, the edge of the grid, let's say the distribution node, a node on the distribution grid. The idea is you satisfy as much of the demands of that distribution node with resources within that distribution node. Yep. Net that out. So the only power that the distribution node is asking for from the transmission system is whatever is left over once it has subtracted its own supply from demand or demand from supply. And then you sort of move up levels, right? So in a sense, everything is kind of a microgrid. It's like microgrids within microgrids within microgrids. I don't even know if that's the right terminology, yeah. but like you, you, islands within islands within islands. Yeah, you have ultimately you'd be looking at a system with multiple abstraction layers where you know, some amount of management is done locally and then those nodes are connected to the broader system and then the broader system does its own coordination. But the thing that's really nice about that model is that you don't have to worry about your toaster from the California ISO. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> Which, exactly. There's someone in between the California ISO and me that's worrying about my toaster, some entity or... Uh, that's right, yeah. And technically, you could build a system that did kind of coordinate from the, you know, from the ISO to the toaster. But what you would lose in that kind of system that I think is really important is some amount of local abstraction layers and local management entities where you can optimize for different kinds of work. So... Optimizing for the temperature in my house is actually kind of different than optimizing for the load on my transformer and kind of different than optimizing for overall supply and demand for the state of California. Mm -hmm. It is reasonable to have those things handled by different layers, different entities even. Right. And there might be neighborhood goals or values yeah. or, or city goals or values that are slightly different than the state goals or values yeah. and, and so on. And also, just as a matter of computational complexity, I mean, this is this gets to what I was trying to get out of my article is it's one thing for these ISOs or RTOs, these sort of entities that are coordinating 
transmission grids. It's one thing when you're coordinating, call it like, you know, five big power plants and a couple mm-hmm. dozen distribution nodes, right? Like that's, a, that, as we were saying before, like that's a finite number. You can control that more or less centrally. You can control model it that. deterministically. Yeah, you mm-hmm. can model it deterministically. But once you're getting to thousands and millions of devices trying to coordinate all that at every level from a single point, from a single operator at the top, it just seems to me it's rapidly going to overwhelm their ability. Yeah. <laughs> their ability to like, and why would you want to? Like, it just doesn't make sense to have one giant regional organization coordinating your toaster, as you say. <laughs> so, so all of this brings us to the DSO model. Mm-hmm which is, uh, I was delighted to find uh, beloved by both of us. Absolutely. (laughs) Which is, you need an entity, you know, we can discuss whether it has to be a singular entity, but let's just call it an entity for now. You need an entity at the distribution level, at the level of the distribution node that is responsible for coordinating the activities of all these DERs within that distribution node, you know, matching supply and demand, netting it out, determining how much power is needed by the distribution system. And then that node, that DSO, the distribution system operator, does that work. And then the only signal it needs to send up is a single signal. Like we need X amount for our distribution node, right? So it's, it's taking all that complexity at the local level and simplifying it before it sends it upward, basically. And you have that at every level. You're simplifying and sending upward so that once you're at the top level, the ISO, you're dealing with a tractable number of signals rather than trying to talk to every toaster. Yeah, definitely. And even for very large-scale load balancing systems like the ones that we used at Google, they were still built that way, right? It was like local coordination across work within a single data center that was then providing a simple interface to global coordination systems, which basically were like, hey, how much load you got? How much load can you take? Right, And then would readjust allocations every second or two. Right, so from the transmission operator's perspective, a distribution node will basically just be a single machine that either has a set amount of of, of demand or, or can offer a set amount of supply. It would ideally look a lot like a battery does on the ISO system today, I think. Yeah where you've got you know, a certain amount of power need, a certain amount of flexibility available, perhaps a certain amount of power available. But I, I think something like that would be a small enough adjustment on top of how we think about managing at the transmission level today to be practical. Do you? Because uh, <laughs> well, this, this gotta, is a, <laughs> a large amount of reform. Uh, yeah, well, don't, don't get me wrong. Like, There's definitely new software components, new data components, new business model components, all of the above required to do this. Right. Well, it's it's the business part and the regulatory part that that's baffling to me because that's the hardest, in my experience, the hardest part to get moving on. And we and right now, just to be like clear with everyone, there is no such entity in the U.S. Basically, there's no entity responsible for handling the complexity at the local level, simplifying it, and then sending the signal up. So we would have to create those out of parts. So I know um, Lorenzo Christoph, who I drew on to, to write that original piece, who's kind of the guru uh, of all this stuff, I think has been beating his head against the wall in California, trying to get them to run DSOs or test models or, or, or you know create test DSOs. So who who out there 
is doing that? And what does the DSO model look like? Is it like up and running and working anywhere? Or is it all <laughs> experiments? Yeah. So this is where I get to talk about Australia, as promised, because Australia has a really nice large-scale demonstration of this type of model that they're actually pretty far into at this point. So, you know, like many regions, including the UK, a couple of years ago, Australia sort of took a look at the oncoming challenges associated with DERs on the electrical system. Yes, swarming rooftop solar, per some previous podcasts here, tons of rooftop solar way ahead of anybody else. Absolutely. And so they were a little bit more motivated maybe than (laughs) other places to try to solve this problem. And so there was a bunch of really interesting work led up there, mostly out of AEMO, but also out of the CSIRO and some of the universities and stuff as well. And I I know what this is because I'm from Australia. Um, But what they did was come up with a couple of kind of trial models of coordination between AEMO, which is the Australian market operator, this is the kind of the ISO, Mm -hmm. and the distribution network operators and the aggregators that were, and retailers that were working within some of their key markets. And one really relevant example of this work was something called Project Edge, which you can Google, although you might need to, I don't know, add AEMO or something to it just AEMO. And what that was doing was looking at a coordination model exactly like the one that you're describing. So it was asking the distribution network operator to take on more of a DSO role. It was asking the aggregators to provide data about the location of their devices, what they plan to do with them, those kinds of things. And AEMO is playing a coordinator role to kind of sponsor that and bring some of the data together. But ultimately, it's a sort of joint function between those three parties. That's just one example of how this model could work. The UK is taking a little bit of a different approach with the central regulator and kind of central operator of JAM and National Grid taking a bit more of a central role in that. But still, it's kind of looking at the idea of cutting up the system into multiple localized components and then having some entity take on a distribution system operator role to collect that data about the state of the grid and the things that are participating in it coordinate that with data from the aggregators and coordinate that with data about market participation. And in Australia, they liked the results of that so much that they are planning on rolling it out nationwide. Interesting. Which is an advantage of being a smaller country. And so this will, because, you know, they've got so much rooftop solar now that they're having duck curve problems and even some stability problems, I think. So where they've tried this, they're solving that kind of duck curve-ish problem. Yeah, so some of the early applications in Australia particularly focus on being able to curtail rooftop solar in places where they have basically oversupply issues. So it's mm. a duck curve problem, right? And just given the way that sort of social license and kind of public sentiment works in Australia, if you're curtailing somebody's solar, the Australian consumer or citizen will kind of expect you to pay for that just as much as they would expect you to pay for the energy that they provided when it wasn't curtailed. And so they needed a market construct to support that. The other thing that is happening within that broader model that I think is really interesting is also the ability to do basically flexible interconnections. Mm. So being able to basically say, like, you can connect this new load, you know, EV bus charging is my favorite example, but only if you don't exceed a certain capacity allocation. So you can connect it and it's kind of up to you to manage that. And we will give you that capacity allocation either as a fixed allocation, or even better, as a dynamic allocation. 
And that idea of like a dynamic capacity allocation that a user has to stay within is called dynamic operating envelopes. And that's a sort of technical component of that Australian work that helps the system operator to manage basically like the capacity allocation to every individual DER consumer or producer. Right. And this is where, again, automation comes in because you're not going to get every bus charger operator to sit there with their hand on the on the lever no. <laughs> pulling it up and down as as these dynamic constraints change. Yeah, this is a job for computers. This is not a job for humans. So, there are DSO models out there happening in the US. Let's talk about the weird US <laughs> situation. So, in the US, recently FERC issued this order, is it 2222 or Yeah. Yeah, 2222, which says Aggregators, which, you know, just in case people are not familiar with these, that's just like a third-party entity that strikes contracts with dozens or hundreds or thousands of DER owners to basically give them control over those DERs so that they can treat them as an aggregate, treat them as a big giant generator or treat them as a big giant battery. And then FERC's Order 2222 says those aggregators can play in wholesale energy markets, basically. So you can take an aggregation of DERs and pretend to be a power plant in the wholesale power market, basically, or, or, yeah. or act as though you are a power plant in the power plant market. And that's, you know, a response to the need for our system to make more of these DERs, to use these DERs rather than just be a victim of these DERs, to take yeah. some control of them and use them in such a way that they're useful but to me, like that just feels kludgy, feels like a half-ass solution because, <laughs> because you have this weird thing where, you know, pretty soon, like I said, the, these wholesale markets, you know, depending on how many aggregators you have, and I'm not sure totally how that market's going to shake out, but like there could be a lot of them eventually. Again, you're just like, why have the one central coordination of all those machines? I just feels like that that should be resolved, that the stuff among individual <laughs> DERs should be resolved at the local level and not something for the ISO to have to be dealing with. And also, so you have sort of aggregators kind of speaking directly with the ISO, kind of bypassing any DSO. It's just a weird kind of hybrid model of localness and centrality, I guess. To me, this seems like a simple a temporary fix on the way to something better. Do you, how do you feel about 2222? I think it's definitely a key part of a solution. I actually really like 2222 for a little bit of a roundabout reason. What it does is mandate that aggregators should have access to wholesale markets and it is entirely silent on the interaction of the DERs that they control with the network that they're actually located on, on the distribution side which is kind of bad in the sense that you really want to know probably what's happening with any assets that are moving a lot of load around on the distribution side. <laughs> yeah, if you're running a distribution grid and a bunch of the machines within it, their behavior is being coordinated on behalf of the ISO, that might not be exactly the kind of behavior you need for stability at the local level. Absolutely. It, it might cause a lot of problems, and I think it's actually likely to cause some problems. However... There's nothing to stop a given distribution operator utility from deciding that they, you know, they want to understand what's happening, that they want to be able to play a coordinative role or at least, you know, get data from aggregators about what they're doing. 
and to say like, look, I want to take on a distribution system operator role within this broader system. And there are some implementations of 2222 that are kind of going that direction. Hmm. The one I'm particularly thinking of is um, PJM has a filing for their implementation that does include coordinated function with the local utility. And I think that's really interesting. Now, it doesn't necessarily 100% meet the needs of aggregators because it basically says that the local utility should have visibility into and perhaps dispatch control over aggregate resources. Kind of a veto, right? Because it's those yeah. local needs that ultimately are the, the, that's the actual toaster coming on. So you don't really want to veto either. But one thing that I think is really important to remember about those aggregators and the resources that they're managing on the customer side is that they want to get paid for the services they can provide. And one way to get paid for that would be to bid them into the wholesale market. But the value of the service that those local DERs could provide is actually a lot higher to the distribution utility that they're located on. Mm. If we look at, you know, kind of all up and down the value stack, like, you know, selling energy on the market is part of that value stack, but like selling peak shaving at the local transformer or substation level theoretically is very valuable. In practice, no one's paying today. Right, if there were a market at the local <laughs> level. This is the thing. It almost seems like the DSO should be yeah. running a local market. Absolutely. And the DSO should be sort of serving as the aggregator, right? So like you just you know, let the local market do its thing, and then you bid for whatever's left. You bid up into the wholesale market. Does that make sense? Yeah, and so I think what this does is provide an opening to start having that conversation. FERC 2222 doesn't really provide the structure for that like kind of DSO, ISO, aggregator, coordination function as we see in other countries. But it does provide kind of a stick in the kind of carrot and stick sense, in the sense that, you know, you could either choose to take a leadership role in coordinating the behavior of assets on your network as a utility, or you could just let that happen and kind of deal with the stability and cost implications on the back end. And don't get me wrong, there's probably a bunch of utilities that will end up doing the latter. But there is an opportunity to do the former. And some will go that way. Yeah. And this, so in your efforts to uh, cajole (laughs) utilities into doing things differently, (laughs) I feel like the landscape is littered with the exhausted husks of, of, of people who have spent their lives trying to get utilities to do things differently. Uh, you're you're focusing specifically on co-ops and munis as kind of places to experiment with this more local model, this DSO model. Why is yeah. that? So we do also work with investor-owned utilities, but primarily with ones who have a vision for taking that leadership role and really kind of want to move that direction. But One thing that's really nice about working with co-ops and munis, which are both nonprofit, typically local utility structures, is that they have a very local set of motivations around serving the community, Mm. um, keeping costs low within their specific community. And they're also nonprofits, which makes things a lot simpler from a business model perspective. They also are pretty sensitive to cost of energy, which for most investor-owned utilities is, financially speaking, it's a pass-through. Um, it's not really part of their profit model. Right. So for a co-op or a muni to save a bunch of money on the cost of the energy that they procure for their customers, it's like kind of a direct benefit because that goes back to the customer in the form of lowered bills or for a co-op, they even sometimes send checks back to their members, which I think is really cool. But they care a lot about this and that's a business motivation for them. 
Likewise, if they are looking at substantial system upgrades because they're going to see a lot of load growth, that might be from electrification. But actually for these utilities today, it's more often because somebody's like planning on putting in a factory or a data center or something like that. They're open to looking at non-wires alternatives and you know, kind of using like smart management to avoid doing a very expensive substation upgrade. Again, because they would have to pass that cost back along to a very limited number of members. And it's not like investor-owned utilities don't have a similar broad motivation or care about it. But if you're a co-op, you know, executive or staff member, you know, people come up to your front desk asking about like, hey, why is my <laughs> bill $15 higher? Or we'll run into you in the in the supermarket. That's right. And it's just a very different relationship with the community for those utilities. So you think they're more open to this? Have you have you gotten movement? Are there are there U.S. co-ops and in, in, in munis that are setting the standard here? Yeah, so there are a bunch of utilities that have been really interested in kind of moving down this path towards a distribution system operator model and taking on a more active kind of local system operator role. And that's true across kind of all of those segments from co-op to muni to some IOUs as well. The thing that's nice about the co-ops is that they can move faster because they're small. Mm. And sometimes also, you know, they will just decide that something's working and decide to roll it out broadly. <laughs> Whereas if you're at an investor and utility and you had the greatest thing in the world, you'd probably still be stuck going through a kind of regulatory approval cycle for scaling it up. Process, process, process. You know, there's good and bad to that. But you know, the co-ops are often self-regulating or at least minimally regulated by the Public Utility Commission because they are deemed to be acting in the public interest. So they can move quickly. And so there are a subset of co-ops, which are rural electric utilities that have been experimenting with these models and are moving very quickly in this direction. And it looks different depending on the utility as to what that looks like for them. Some of them have been pushing really hard on generating energy locally and avoiding the wheeling costs of like shipping it across transmission and putting that money back into the community. So there's one that we work with in northern New Mexico that does that and they serve the area around Taos. And they decided that they wanted to get to 100% of their daytime electricity load served by local solar. Mm. They're actually at about 120% now. Wow. <laughs> and they're starting to look at models where they can export power out of the community, which I think is a really interesting like economic growth opportunity for communities like that. Yeah. Again, if you can imagine these local markets, you can also imagine markets in between. Yeah distribution nodes, right? Like imagine if my distribution node, you know, I'm handling all the complexity within the DSOs handling all the complexity within the distribution node comes up with a certain amount of leftover demand that it needs satisfied. It could procure that from the next distribution node over, right? And it's in a peer-to-peer transaction and not have to involve the ISO at all, theoretically. Yeah. And there's, there's probably a bunch of different ways that this might play out, but you certainly could see a world where that's the case. And it also it's has a delightfully localized kind of quality to it in the sense that like the community's mostly self-supplying in mm-hmm. you know local electricity and including you know batteries and flexibility that get them through the night. But they also have this opportunity to potentially export a resource that they have a lot of, which is pretty cool because it's you know sun. Part of the delightful locality of it is some communities might value resilience more. So they'll want to, say, bank more of their excess solar and batteries. Some communities might want 
the money more. So they'll be more likely to sell it across to a different distribution node, right? Like you can, communities will actually have much more fine-grained control over their energy. And one of the things points Lorenzo makes a lot of times is this would make it much easier for local electricity and energy policy to be coordinated with local building policy and local transportation policy. And basically like your local, you know, it becomes part of how you want to run your, your local area. Yep. And ideally that would include members of the local community getting paid for the flexibility that they provide too, because that's, that's a big part of how we get this done. One other example I'd, I'd want to give for that is there's another utility I know pretty well. It's in Colorado. They're expecting to double their load in the next five years. Just population growth? No, it's actually a mix of factories, actually clean energy production facilities, ah. uh, delightful <laughs> also, um, and data center loads, which are really growing due to you know all, all those big cloud computing facilities that we mentioned earlier. So they're looking at double their current energy usage, and there's no way they're going to get enough transmission <laughs> additions built out to support that. Right. Especially since it takes 10 to 15 years yes. to build one line. So Yes. Like transmission is one of the few industries where you can pass along a single project to your children, which is not <laughs> a compliment. A legacy, legacy project. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, they're looking very closely at models where they can trade generation and flexibility and storage amongst their large users, particularly within their territory. Because mm. the usage profiles for you know, a refrigeration facility are different from that of a shipping facility, um, you know, maybe a lot of EVs charging, and different, again, from a factory facility. A lot of those would also be inclined to put local generation in, went, you know, to the commercial and industrial site. And getting all of that stuff signed up to become part of the future overall supply profile for that territory, it requires a DSO function. There's kind of no other way to do it. Yeah, somebody's got to be in charge of all that. Yeah, and so that's a place where, like, the utility taking that leadership role really makes a lot of sense because, like, I, I don't know how else that they would manage it. Yeah, what do you think are the prospects of basically just local distribution utilities right now, which are just sort of running the wires right now and billing customers growing into the DSO role? Like, when you bring it up to them, do they just blink at you <laughs> like it's such a you know sort of cosmic upgrade of their role and importance and and, and responsibilities etc like are any of them eager to do that or yeah i mean there are a lot of utilities that see this as being part of their future i think the tricky part is it's a really big change for an industry that hasn't had you know load growth in 20 years being able to suddenly adapt to all of the technology and organizational and business model changes required to you know, support that is going to be a lift. Yeah, it's wild. Like 20 years without load growth, without really substantial change in the industry. And all of a sudden now it's like yeah. new tech, new models, new regulatory models, new legal models, like boom, 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 boom. It's it's a lot. Yeah. And so there are utilities that are definitely thinking about this. Like SCE has a public roadmap that's really nice that covers a transition to a DSO model. The only thing that's a bit of an issue with the normal utility process for this kind of change is that it tends to be very slow. And in many cases, we're going to need to see rapid adaptation yeah. you know, in the next like three to five years. And for most utilities, they're used to kind of planning on a five to 10 year time horizon. Yeah. Utilities and PUCs. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm not sure that PUCs are exactly legendary for being <laughs> agile either. 
They do compare notes. <laughs> so if you get something that works well in one place, a lot of times they will try to spread that more broadly. And so, you know, from my perspective, like one of the best things that we can do to make this happen is just like show it operating mm -hmm. at scale in as many places as possible. Like not all of those will be right the first time, but it's not the kind of problem that you can really sit down for five years, come up with a solution to, and then <laughs> right. implement. Right. This is, which is the utility way, right? You right. make this point in one of your talks too, is like the whole software world model, which is that you sort of build, iterate, test, learn. Yeah. Rebuild, reiterate, test, learn. Like that's foreign to the utilities. And it's not that, you know, in the software world, it's not like we don't plan ahead or design things. Of course we do. But you design with the idea that rapid iteration is going to get you closer to the goal more quickly. Right. And we've seen really good success with this in adjacent industries, right? Like one of my old bosses at Google was really interested in skydiving and decided that he wanted to jump from space from a water balloon. <laughs> Such a Google guy <laughs> This is, thing this to is do. definitely a Google problem. And so in order to do this, he acquired, this was kind of post-Google for him, but he got really interested in spacesuit design and then worked <laughs> with the company it's in, in the US that's the premier designer of spacesuits who had not designed a new one since like 1973 huh. to rapidly develop, prototype, test, and deploy new spacesuits so that he could jump from space in a weather balloon, um, which, by the way, is a total badass move. Um, he's an engineer from the ground up. But so, you know, they worked in a really iterative kind of rapid development and testing cycle, and they got that done within like a couple of years. And now the same company is developing the spacesuits that are like the next generation mm. ones that are used for you know, SpaceX and Blue Origin and all of those. Yeah, I mean, if nothing else, like this is like a chance to be a hero, right? Like this is oh a, gosh, wide, yes. a wide open field. And like, there's just so many opportunities here for, for innovation, for people to try new things and, and, and show successes. Yeah, it's a really exciting time in the industry broadly. And, you know, for the subset of folks at utilities that are really actually interested in thinking about what the future of the industry that looks like is going to look like and kind of working towards building that, like, Boy, it's an exciting time to be in that industry too. I know, I know, I know. I, I, you know, I've been writing about this stuff for twenty years now, and it is still somewhat head spinning. How, like, all of a sudden, it's just all happening. It's changing really fast on the ground. <laughs> it's just waiting and waiting, and then boom! All of a sudden, it's all happening. So I would feel bad if we did this whole thing and I didn't give you a chance to sort of say what your company does. Your company is called <laughs> is called Camus. Why? Why right. Cam? Why Camus? By the way, I was thinking existentialists. This must be about. The existential despair that you that you experience <laughs> when you contemplate trying to reform utilities? Uh, not exactly, um, but related. Uh, so we are named for this philosopher. And the reason for that is actually really specifically, so Camus wrote this essay called The Myth of Sisyphus. Yes. There's a, a short version in a longer book by the same name. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. One of my yeah. favorite, one of my all-time favorite uh, <laughs> philosophy quotes. Yeah, so the short version is only about three pages long, and I totally recommend it. But Camus is basically asking, how do you create a sense of meaning in the face of a, you know, a large, uncontrolled, potentially godless universe, right? Like, where do you <laughs> yes. derive a sense of purpose? And his answer for this was basically, you pick something, you work on it, you find joy in the process, yes. not 
in the notion that you're going to win, but in the everyday act of like pushing a rock up a hill and yeah. following it back down. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. So, so you, so at the base level, like you, I, I think there's sort of like levels of your service at the base level, you're just helping utilities be more aware of DERs. Yeah. And then sort of laddering up from there, like coordinating them, et cetera, et cetera. So like how, 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 how high up do you, <laughs> you go on that ladder? <laughs> Well, since we've gone to the trouble of describing a DSO and what it does, our goal is really to create a software platform that will enable a utility to take on that role. So a much more real-time and local operations model that can include local resources as part of the supply and demand landscape and ultimately include them into like capacity management and network management for the grid and let them get paid for it. Got it. So you're creating the tools for the DSOs for whenever they show up. <laughs> We are creating the tools for the utilities that want to take on that role and working with them to figure out what that looks like in practice. Right. And we, and we should emphasize for the utilities out there listening, this is not a binary thing. No, it's not like it's you're a jumping off the high dive into the whatever. Like there are pieces of this yep. you, can, you can adopt one at a time. Yep, that's right. It's a process, right? The question is not like, what's it take to get to the grid of tomorrow? The question is more like, what is the set of reasonable steps that you can take with like the data and control capabilities of today? to like add more sophistication, get better visibility, add coordination, talk to aggregators, coordinate with for 2022 deployment, 2022 deployments, all of those kinds of things. So it's going to be a process, but it doesn't have to be impossible. But it's just great that like this idea of making the electricity system more like the internet goes way back as I'm sure you're aware like, you know, Al Gore was talking about the internet. Of course, he was trying to like coin a term for it back in like <laughs> back in like 2007 you know and I used to like I went through a period of hype for it and being very excited about it and DERs and all that and then I sort of like ran up against utility intransigence and had my life force drained but now it seems like at long last the hype cycle has come back around and it's actually happening now like there's actual things happening actual movement in that direction happening it's all happening. <laughs> it's very exciting. So final final question then, and this is a kind of a, a bit of a curveball, but I'm curious. So say we imagine our, our glorious future here in the U.S. where we have revolutionized the system and we now have this, we now have all local electricity being administered and run by DSOs who, as we say, resolve the complexity of the local area before passing on a signal upward, you know, maybe nested a couple of levels, you know, maybe like the, the level above them has three or four distribution nodes and the level above them, et cetera, et cetera. But by the time it gets to the transmission level, you've already maximized the use of local resources, basically, is the goal here is to maximize the use of local resources before calling on large scale distant resources. So... Imagining that glorious future where we've made that happen, how much of net U.S. energy do you think will come from local resources versus still coming from big utility-scale power plants on the transmission system? Do you have a, a either a predicted or desired balance of those two in your in your kind of perfect world? So I've seen modeled estimates that put that somewhere between 30 to 50 percent. Huh. Um, and, you know, you talk to other folks in the space who do modeling on this. There's some really good work from uh, Vibrant Clean Energy that did a bunch of work on the potential role of local resources a couple of years ago. 
But I, I think somewhere in that like kind of 40%-ish space is likely and practical. In Australia right now, by the way, it's um, sometimes 50 and sometimes 70% local. <laughs> so it's also, you know, it's just like, do you mean instantaneous or overall? Because if it's instantaneous, sometimes it could be 100% or even more if we're storing right, it. Right, right. I mean, overall, like on a net yearly yeah, basis. But on an, on an overall basis, because the sun does go down. And the wind doesn't always blow, as you covered very well. Um, I feel like forty percent is pretty reasonable. Interesting, interesting. That would be a, it'd be a good like uh, something to go to one of those betting sites, start a pool on. <laughs> say, say twenty forty. What's the net balance? Well, Astrid, this has been an absolute delight, as I knew it would be. I love this whole subject. I love what you're doing. As I say, it feels like you are someone that I willed into being by, <laughs> by writing my 2018 piece, which is, you know, I'm sure you existed before that. but I, I certainly did, but the piece made a huge difference in how I was thinking about the space. So I'm pretty grateful for that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, it's a delight to have you on. And I'd love to have you back on again sometimes when, uh, once this stuff evolves some, because this is an uh, endlessly, uh, inexhaustibly fascinating topic. So thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.